They've arrived at this water, it's bitter, they're thirsty. And we have to remember in in Exodus 13, which is a few chapters before what we've had read, it says this, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. For God said, if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. So then we get the Red Sea passage, which we had last week. And then we have this kind of incredible song of exaltation. We have the community coming together because the deeds of God demand a deep response. And three days later, they haven't had any water and they finally arrive at Marah. And the quench And the dehydration and the excitement and the deep thirst and longing as they finally come to water is not even drinkable. And so two things happen, which is going to lead to their ultimate joy. God is going to show them that their ultimate thirst is quenched and that their life is going to be aligned to God. And what happens in this passage is that God uses something outside of themselves to turn the bitter water into sweet, thirst-quenching water. Everything was ready. Even though the water was bitter, there was a, a tree there. Everything was ready for God to deal with the problem that they faced. And God had led them out of Egypt. He'd led them through the Red Sea. And he's asking them, do you trust me? And there is a resounding no. No, we do not trust you. We don't even trust you enough to address you directly. They don't even go to God. They go to Moses. What are we going to do? What are we going to drink? And still God is going to provide everything they need. And what's fascinating about this passage is how God views this interaction. If we were to describe God of this passage, we would describe him as, as God, the great conjurer or God the miracle worker, or God the water cooler guy. You know, here we go. He's going to deal with the problem and the water, but that's not the name God gives himself. What God does is he, he puts two Hebrew words together, and nowhere else in the whole Bible are these words put together. At the first word, here it is. At the first word, we're reading the opposite way around because it's Hebrew. The first word is Yahweh. Yahweh. When Moses says at the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? Yahweh. I am who I am. And you know that word is in your Bibles because Lord is written in little small capital letters. You know it's not just Lord as in the Lord of the manor, it's Lord as in the Lord. Yahweh. And constantly God refers to himself with this name, I am. And then what he does is he often adds a different word to Yahweh to show and reveal a little bit more about his character and his nature and who he is. Yahweh Raphore. Yahweh Raphore. I am healer. God who heals. Or in our translation, I am the Lord who heals you. And what's interesting is this passage is, I just thought about thirst. They're thirsty. But what God does, he doesn't just stay in this kind of one historical moment. He pans right out to give us the bigger picture, not just of himself, but of his plans. It's not that their greatest need was this thirst quench. Their greatest need was that they were saved. 
to be God's people. And he uses the imagery of a doctor as a metaphor for their great salvation. This is the meta-narrative of the salvation of the people of God from the hands of their enemy. You see, we, we talked a little bit about this last week, but this was a group of people who were oppressed physically, emotionally, psychologically enslaved. They were literally and spiritually enslaved. They weren't able to worship God. They weren't able to be the people of God. And now they can. That is their great healing. Because otherwise, this passage just seems bizarre, especially to us. Not many of us need God to provide water. Not many of us need God to save us from Egypt. And now God is calling himself the one who heals. But Jesus links the dots for us. Jesus comes along and there's lots of people that are really upset with the people he's hanging out with. And they're like, why do you hang out with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors? And in Matthew 9, he says this. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, But the sick, he takes that imagery. Then he speaks to them directly, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. He uses that imagery of healing and places it upon us. This is the reason he came. Our narrative is our own salvation from death to life, from sin to forgiveness, from alienation to adoption, our way to God's way, a need no longer. God leads us into deep joy. And in the same way with this historical account, the bitter water embittered their first quench. So our sin bitters our lives. It bitters our relationships with God and it bitters our relationships with each other. And we cannot unbitter ourselves. And yet God provides. He provided the stick for the Israelites and he provided the cross for us to heal our very souls, the deepest part of us, the deepest thirst we have. Offering forgiveness from the past, new life today, and a hope for the future. This is the way God heals. It's not the only way, but it's the way that he offers to every single person on the planet. And this is the deepest joy God leads us to. Because it transcends any circumstance. There are many times where you and I are not going to feel happy. Our circumstances and our lives just will not allow it. But in our souls, we find deep rest, deep joy in the knowledge that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. St. Peter, how does he write it? He talks about, he says it like this. For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. Reconciled to God. And the reason it's deep joy is because nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's the whole point of Romans 8. Death, life, angels, demons, Whatever it is, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And that's why it's deep joy. It's unshakable, no matter what we go through. So then the question has to be, well, what then? God's healed 
And he doesn't continually leave them to make themselves sick again and again and again. So in order to lead them to deep joy, in order to give them deep joy, and hear me out because this might be a little bit confusing, but hear me out. In order to give them deep joy, he gives them the law. Have a look with me in verse 25. It says this. He threw it into the water, that's Moses, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling, an instruction for them, and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands, keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Now, none of us need to be a historian to know that history has been blighted by Christians thinking they can do whatever they want because they're Christians whether it's individual priests or church leaders or whether it's whole nations. The idea of God on our side and it's led to slavery, it's led to the Crusades and a whole host of whatever history can vomit up. The expectation of God for the Israelites is not to live however they want. But if God is healer as he claims he is, he's going to give them the ongoing medicine they need and what we need. Imagine uh, with me for a moment a doctor, and the doctor is performing a life-saving operation. It's a huge operation, and it saves someone's life. That for us, that operation is the cross. It saves our lives. And yet to show the depth of love and salvation, God doesn't just leave us on the operating table. He gives us a way of living in order that we would flourish and recover. He leads us into deep joy. It's the whole point of what's coming up over these next couple of chapters, which is the Ten Commandments, and then we're going to have law after law of the law. How are you best to live? See, God didn't want the Israelites just to live, just to say, well, as long as we don't live like the Egyptians, as long as we don't do that. God calls his people to live by a higher standard. And if you're a Christian, then we can't even look at the Israelites and go, well, as long as I'm not like the Israelites. He calls us to a deeper response, a deeper joy. Let me give you an example. And we're going to use something massive like murder, okay, which sounds really big, but hear me out. The Egyptians practiced something called infanticide, which was the killing of young children. They'd often be sacrificed and a way of punishment for the Israelites, they were killing their young babies. Israelites come along and they can't just say, well, as long as we don't do that, we're going to be fine. God comes along and he says in the sixth commandment, no murder, period. It's not just about not doing what they're doing. It's saying you've got to live a certain way, no murder, Jesus then comes along and he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. I tell you, anyone who, um, I tell you, anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Constantly in the Old Testament, you hear this phrase, be holy as I am holy. If you are my people and I am your God, you have to live like you follow me. Why? For our joy. God says, I've created the world. I know how this works. 
with your life and your work and your money and your relationships. I know how it's all meant to be put together. God gives us the law of the Sabbath, right? Which is a rhythm of life. God's not up there in heaven looking down on you. If you work seven days a week for years, he's not going, I wonder how this is going to work out. So I wonder what I can learn from someone working like this. And actually it affects our happiness, doesn't it? We can't work as, as hard as other people often. Sometimes we have to say no to certain commitments. But God gives us a way of living and, and, a, and a rhythm of life that is meant to be lived out for our deep joy. Now, what can happen in Christianity when you start talking about the law and doing things is kind of two opposing extremes. And one is the prosperity gospel and the other is legalism. And what the prosperity gospel is, is where it says, do this and God will give you a momentary blessing. If you live like X, Y and Z, God's going to give you a you know, financial like blessing he's going to give you cars and he's going to give you houses and he's going to give you no sickness all health he's going to give you whatever you want the problem is with that is nowhere in the bible does 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 god ever say that and all of these things that they're claiming to be blessings are all momentary you get a car it's going to break down you need a new one you get a house what if you lose it Nowhere in the Bible does it say there's never going to be sickness. There's never going to be any of these things. There's never going to be pain or suffering or disillusionment. And the problem is with this, with this idea of the gospel, it distorts everything. It makes the kind of physical the preeminent thing rather than the joy of our salvation. And on the other extreme, you've got legalism which says if you do X, Y, and Z, or if you don't do A, B, C, God doesn't love you. He can't love you. Both are wrong. God leads us into deep joy, and neither of these sound joyful because you're never going to live up to one and the other is just lies. We have to remember, where are the Israelites? They're out of slavery. They've been freed. Before they're living to God's expectations, before they're living to God's way, God has already saved them. God made the covenant with Abraham hundreds of years before this moment, that I would bless the world through you. We have to remember which way round everything has gone. How many of us started behaving in a certain way, which meant Jesus died for us and our sins? No one. No one. Jesus is not still in Jerusalem, sitting at the foot of the cross, waiting for us to get our lives together, waiting us to do A, B and C and go, finally, I'm going to die for them. Yet while we were still far off, while we were still in our sins, Jesus died for us. Jesus died for us. Why does God show us how to live? Because he's given us salvation already. Because he's given us salvation already. And now he says, let me give you a gift to live and to flourish and know that I love you. God leads us 
into deep joy. Joy in our salvation and joy in living and aligning ourselves in his plans. Deep joy, unshakable joy. Now, I also said that I wanted to kind of talk about this offshoot thing that seems we can barely scratch the surface here today and we're going to talk about it as a four o'clock service um, in November. But here God talks about being a healer. And there's no way that you can read through the Bible and not see God intervening in so many different ways. You read through the Gospels again and again and again. Jesus seems to be healing people physically. There's no way around it. Physical healing, actual physical healing. We read through the Psalms and you read Jesus saying, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened and I will give you rest. That sounds like emotional healing to me. There's no way around it. Oh, it's just kind of, you know, some kind of spiritual thing. But he's talking about something within our souls, within our minds, emotional healing. And then we seem to see throughout the Bible and throughout church history, circumstantial healing. It'd be so easy to become a church that is so secularized that we just literally, we barely mention that God can intervene in our lives. We talk about the big stuff such as salvation, but we never actually pray, God, would you change this situation? Would you change this circumstance that I am in? Because for many of us, we have broken and painful circumstances. And here, God has declared, I am healer. Now, the preeminent way God heals is through salvation, the forgiveness of sins. But to just stop there and to say, well, let's not press in, let's not ask for healing, I think would be wrong. I don't know what type of leader I would be. And so I'd love us now to pray for healing, whatever that is, physical, emotional, circumstantial, whatever it is in our lives. And so um, can I invite you to stand? And we're not going to do anything weird. We're not about hype in any way. I don't understand this, which is why I often just don't talk about it. The problem is God has said it here in his word. I am healer. And so I'd love us now in our heart of hearts to just think about how we, we want to ask God for healing or a situation that we know or a family member that we know that we want to pray for healing. Heavenly Father, you lead us to deep joy. Deep joy in our salvation. Deep joy in aligning our lives to your will. And you declare yourself to be Yahweh, healer. And so we ask now, we come before you, the prayers and petitions of our heart, for healing in the name of Jesus.
And we ask that you would come into the situations and the difficulties and the pain and our brokenness and our fear. And we ask you to heal.